Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. I'm really excited to share this episode about Tasmania with you listeners out there. I talked to David Cox, the state manager for Hawthorne Football Club. His role involves the coordination of bringing four home games of football to Tasmania and the tourism opportunities that it presents. It's my first time interviewing an Australian guest, which was great because it was done at a normal time of the day. But more than that, it's really exciting to share how diverse Australia is. And I'm so proud to be showcasing the different states and what they have to offer. Tasmania, in my view, is a little island on the southwest of Australia that despite being so small, punches so far above its weight in tourism offerings, boasting some of the most fresh food and wines, rich culture and history, and breathtaking hiking and trekking that Australia has to offer. Coming to you here from Melbourne, looking out onto a city street, and then talking to David, who overlooks five acres of rolling green hills, I was just thinking, I have to get down to Tasmania ASAP for some fresh air and wide open space. It's a great episode today, and I really hope you all enjoy David's passion for Tasmania that is just so prevalent in the way he talks about his beautiful state. Here's the episode. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So one thing I like to ask all my guests is... What do you see, hear, and smell when you step out of your front door in Tasmania? Uh, well, I'm actually singularly lucky because I live, I'm in, based in Launceston, um, but I'm about 15 minutes out of Launceston. If I look out my window now, we've got um, a beautiful one five acres, so lovely lawn overlooking an old English hedgerow and rolling hills down to the Tamar River. So there's a vineyard next door. Um, uh, which in autumn looks beautiful because of the leaves, but it's it's completely fresh and, and clean. We went out bike riding this morning um, and it was just, you know, if I was a religious man, I'd say it was almost godly. Um, which <laughs> not. It was just, um, you know, we are so blessed with it being a very fresh, clean and green environment that it just smacks you in the face. It's beautiful. Fresh, clean and green plus winery. Is there anything more you could want? (laughs) Right. So for those who don't know, can you just tell us a little bit about where Tasmania is and what the best way is to get there? Yeah. So Tasmania is um, the island states off the southeast coast of Australia. It's the very bottom of Australia. So it's about a 45-minute flight from Melbourne. It's separated from the mainland by Bass Strait. Um, so the two ways to get into Tasmania to fly in, and there are t- there are there are three or two key airports. Hobart down south in Tasmania is the capital. So um, and then Launceston in the north is a regional city. Both of them have direct flights to other cities around uh, around the country. And then Devonport's a small regional airport which connects to Melbourne. And the Spirit of Tasmania, which is a, a ship with two ships called the Spirits, and they go back and forth for Melbourne car cargo you know, backpackers often go on those too. So it's well connected. There's no international flights at the moment, although there are movements afoot to connect with New Zealand direct from Hobart. And that obviously is reliant on runway um, length and, um, and kind of the weight capacity of the runway. So um, yeah, it's a, it's, 
it's beautiful because it's remote from the rest of the country. So it has a topography that's it's very unique. Um, so the last time it was connected to the mainland was 10,000 years ago. So wow. you can imagine that there are animals and, and cultures that migrated south and then were cut off for the last 10,000 years. So it's a very unique location. I have to admit, I am very excited for this podcast. I have been to Tasmania a few times and I really feel like it's a fascinating place and has really only come into the tourism spotlight in the past 10, 15 years or so. Um, And I want to make sure that we cover everything Tasmania has to offer. And I know that is a plethora of things. But I I wanted to start off, you know, with what you said, with the nature. Tasmania is full of nature, hiking trails. And I know that your motto is come down for some air. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of what the hiking uh, national parks and the walking trails are like? I think the first the first way to start that part of the conversation is to um, explain that twenty percent of Tasmania is world heritage listed wilderness. Mm. That's a big chunk. The fifth of the entire landmass in Tasmania has been set aside for world heritage, and there are um, endless tracts of forest and wilderness that aren't world heritage listed but still exist. So, that, um, of of course, um, so um, the, the western wilderness is really the, um, probably the most primal. And primal, I guess, is the word I'd use because it is very ancient rainforest. It's some of the, the least touched land on the planet. And in fact, the Northwest um, was identified by the United Nations as having the cleanest air and water on the planet. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a, an island blessed by... Um, this abundance of uh, alpine uh, mountainous regions, beautiful coastal um, hinterland. Um, there's obviously been a lot of um, clearing of land for, for agriculture and farming, and that lends itself also to some beautiful topography as well. Um, but a Cradle Mountain is probably the jewel and the crown of Tasmania in terms of the location best known for a, a wilderness experience. Um, Cradle Mountain got its name because the, these two kind of peaks um, uh, have a dip in the middle, like a, a baby's cradle, if you like, and there's a beautiful lake called Dove Lake that sits at the base of kind of that area. And so one of the best walks in Tasmania is the, the Dove Lake three-hour circuit that you go around. Um, but the walking, to your point, is one of the key tourism opportunities um, that we that we present to the world, and in fact, Tourism Australia has a program called the Great Walks of Australia, and I think four of them are in Tasmania, out of the eight or nine or so. So it's big. So um, the the most well known hike or walk would be the um, the Overland Track, which goes around the kind of Cradle Mountain area and through that beautiful um, Alpine region. It's pretty harsh. You would never go there in winter in terms of the six-day walk because it's completely brutal. And even in summer, you can, you can have snow and flurries, but it's, it's extraordinary. It's actually, um, at least half of it is a wooden boardwalk that obviously mm-hmm. protects the tundra and the, the alpine heath. Um, so that's the, that, that's the best known. Probably the second best known is a, is a, r- a relatively recent um, creation called the Three Capes Track 
which is um, the southeast of Tasmania, um, you know, direct, you know, diagonally, you know, opposite in terms of its location, down near the kind of Port Arthur. And it's this extraordinary track over three days that walks on these three capes, as the name would suggest. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons why it's so extraordinary is because at times you're very close to death. I mean, if you took three feet to your left, <laughs> fall off Jurassic cliffs. I mean, it's extraordinary and completely beautiful. Um, and it, it has, I think you can do it under your own steam, but if you go with a company as well, there are these beautiful state-of-the-art huts that you can sleep in at night. So you mm. have this amazing walk during the day and you have a very comfortable night's rest and some companies will cook you food. So it's amazing. But coastal walks, um, uh, also the Bay of Fires walk, is probably the third big one that's very well known. And the Bay of Fires on Tasmania's northeast coast um, has beaches that are so extraordinary that Lonely Planet identified one of the beaches as being one of the top 10 in the world. Wow. Um, We've got a beach house there. Oh, <laughs> and lucky <it's> you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, to, to paint a picture, it, it, it's, um, you know, the, a lot of these beaches on the Bay of Fires have got these red lichen-covered rocks. Lichen is the moss that covers rocks. Mm. And red and orange. And so it's this brilliant, you know, almost fluorescent, beautiful, you know, burnt orange look of these rocks that ease down into... On calm days, this totally turquoise water that looks like you're in the Bahamas and this white sand that's so white that in bright summer days, you, you can't open your eyes on the beach. It's too bright. Um, very cold water. It's quite deceptive. So you There's think you the, have... There had to be a downside. Right. It, was, it was all sounding way too perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean... It's idyllic. So, you know, there's three very different types of hiking and walking in wilderness areas, but they're equally beautiful. I think one of the great things about the walks as well, and this is a tip to everyone that's listening, is that a lot of them you do need to book and a lot of them are run through companies. And it's really great that they do make it book because it makes sure that these walks are not crowded. And as you said, there are companies that have lodges and I know that people can have like spas and like have spas for their feet at the end of the day as well. And so you can sort of choose what level of luxury you'd like, but they are really great. And I do recommend booking as well if people do want to try those walks out. Well, the, the other key point is the interpretation that you get when you're on these walks. Mm. So, you know, um, I remember years ago um, going to the Northern Territory and, and going to Kakadu and um, taking part in a whole bunch of, of ranger and indigenous guided experiences. And I had friends of mine that did it under their own steam and they didn't, they weren't that wowed by it. And I said, you've missed it all. You've missed the, the story. The storytelling about the, about the location is brought to life through guides that, mm. that help you understand and interpret. Um, there's a new walk on the East Coast called the Wukalina Walk. The same area as the Bay of Fires, but it's indigenous. It's probably Tasmania's... Um, I don't want to say first and only because I'll, I'll get that wrong, but it definitely is the most um, highly regarded now Indigenous tour run by an Aboriginal corporation. It helps unlock the secrets and the storytelling around Aboriginal people that lived on the coast and it's extraordinary. And they've had created these architecturally designed, I hate to use the word humpy, but that's, I guess, I think the word that was used for kind of the 
um, the huts that Aboriginals built when they owned the you know, and when the land was unfettered access by them. Um, so they've got these great architecturally designed huts that you walk and you then you stay in them. So that's also amazing. But of course, having them interpret the land mm. and their history is the critical part of that experience. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think Australia and a lot of people don't know this. We we really shy away from our indigenous history and colonialism and it's not often something that is really present when people do come and visit and you really have to find these experiences specifically if you do want to experience experience indigenous heritage. Um and on top of that as well, Tasmania is full of, has, I think, four out of the nine Australian UNESCO World Heritage Sites um, in a lot of our convict history as well. So I know that Tasmania was a state where many convicts from Britain uh, came down to settle. And so they do have a lot of UNESCO World Heritage Sites like the Cascades Female Factory, um, Woolmers Estates, the Coal Mine Historic Estates. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about them and where they're located? Yeah, it's actually a fascinating story um, because, uh, to your point, um, Tasmania was settled as a penal colony, so it was for the worst people to come down to. And then Port Arthur itself was for those that re-offended whilst they were in Hobart, got sent to Port Arthur. So it was the worst of the worst of the worst. Um, and, and, that, and that is a, a UNESCO World Heritage Site because of the cultural importance around, um, the, I guess, the anthropological history of Tasmania in terms of the European arrivals. The Aboriginal stories are quite a separate one, so I won't touch that because that's um, not part of this particular conversation. In terms of those World Heritage Sites, you've got Moriah Island off the east coast of Tasmania, which is, uh, um, had uh, a convict settlement. You're right about Port Arthur and the, the coal mining sites because one of the things they realised early on was that they, it was far too expensive to import coal to help sustain the new colony. So they found a coal site um, on the Tasman Peninsula and they coal mined that. They used to send the children of convicts down there on ropes to seek out and, and dig coal. It was a terrible, you can imagine mm. how um, and Woolmers and Brigandon Estates is fascinating because up north, where I am, the northern part of the, of the state, they tried to recreate a class system like England. So southern Tasmania was settled as a penal colony for convicts mm-hmm. and for criminals, quote-unquote, and northern Tasmania was settled as landed gentry. So it was, it was um, so people, aristocracy, Occasionally, not so not aristocracy, nobility, um, people with, with wealth would send down their children to, to take charge of vast estates in northern Tasmania um, for, you know, crops, you know, wheat, barley, hops, um, obviously wool. So Woolmers was one of those estates. And Brickenden Farm, which is opposite Woolmers, is another World Heritage Site. That's a working farm. It still works, still owned by the same family that started it, you know, 250 whatever years ago. Um, and essentially, what's so fascinating about those Woolmers and Brickenden is that they were the start, the entire history of Australia's agricultural um, success started here in northern Tasmania. Mm. And then spread out across the, across the country. It all started here, so um, it's fascinating. And of course, it was done on the back of convict labour. 
Yeah, a lot of rich history there. Yeah. So a big reason that Tasmania has had a large rise in visitors, and it would be amiss for me to not talk about these things, is largely due to Mona, so the Museum of Old and New Art, and as well Dark Mofo, which is a festival smack bang in the middle of winter. And I feel like these descriptions, obviously just knowing them is not in any way a accurate description of what they're really like. These are really out there, interesting, really exciting museums and, and festivals. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, you're so right about, you know, 10 years ago, Tasmania was, obviously it was popular, but it was nowhere near right in the way that it is now. And Mona gave us a 10-year head start. So they kicked us 10 years into the future in terms of what, you know, where we could be. So probably the kind of success we've got now without Mona would be another 10 years into the future. So what it did was um, Mona was firmly established Tasmania as a cultural destination and worthy of one of the top modern art museums in the world. So Bilbao in Spain, um, MoMA in New York, um, mm. you know, and... Um, whatever they the Tate in London and then Hobart are kind of the top four. And can you imagine Hobart? And not just Hobart, a suburb of Hobart. The mm-hmm. kooky guy that started it, um, it, um, it, it's essentially a shrine to all his weird interests. Um, and so I won't go into detail about some of the things you can see there, but there are some very, uh, there's quite an obsession with death. And and um and some of the you know um, historic interpretations and culture and themes around around death and sex and and, and life it's it's fascinating, and it's built I guess within a cliff in the suburbs of of Hobart, so you know part of the appeal of Mona is actually the architectural appeal of going down into this museum carved out of the belly of this kind of peninsula. It's fascinating. Um, and so, and the collection is, is extraordinary and changes often. Um, but Mona was kind of the kickstart then for other things that this guy David Walsh wanted to do, which was to, which is constantly to provoke, make people feel uncomfortable, challenge people, as most art does. He does it to the extreme, totally dials that level of challenge and discomfort up. That's what he wants to do. And to the point where if a, if an exhibit becomes too popular, we'll just take it out. Mm. Because, you know. um, so he, he started um, Mona Foma, which is an, a music and art festival uh, in January in Hobart. Um, performance, installation, art, music, you, you, you name it. Um, and then he started back in 2012, I think, Dark Mofo. What was interesting about Dark Mofo is it's built around the winter solstice. So it's very primal. It's very paganistic Mm. because it culminates, you know, in this celebration of kind of fire and death and life. Um, And it's, it's, um, you know, for years, Tourism Tasmania, and I worked for Tourism Tasmania for many years, as, as you know, we really struggled with how to position Tasmania as a viable winter destination because um, Tasmania is cold and dreary in winter. It, 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 it's just the way it is. So what, how could we flip that and reposition it to present Tasmania as somewhere that's a desirable place to go in winter? 
Um, and so we used to talk about things like, you know, going to the cabins in the, you know, in the hills, you know, with some snow. And, and it was very immature, kind of draws some kind of a European heritage of mulled wine and that kind of open mm. fire. Um, really unsophisticated stuff. But we, we didn't, there's nothing to get past that. There's no, there's no other offering. That MoFo comes on board and has the independence from government and the, uh, to be able to do what they want to do. And so they basically say, it's dark and brooding and dangerous. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this new cohort of people, the young 20, 30-somethings, that like this kind of dark, brooding, dangerous, edgy nature, you know, looked up and said, okay, what's happening down in Tasmania in winter? And the first year, I think they had 10,000 people attend the event. Mm -hmm. And then last year, it was like, I don't know, 80,000 people. It's just this extraordinary phenomenon. And he will do whatever he wants with an arts and music festival. And what's refreshing is I remember reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald from a, a cultural um, culture features editor that had come down to Dark Mofo and he said this would never happen in Sydney because in Sydney you'd have bollards you'd have you can't go there you can't do this that's too dangerous but obviously they've got to be risk averse to make sure people are safe but beyond that it's not sanitized at all it's mm. fascinating and to the point where in 2000 and I think 14 we got a call. We didn't get a call. I shouldn't say. I worked for Tourism Taz. <laughs> but Mofo got a call from Coldplay, the band. He said, we're in, we're in Tokyo. We're finishing up. We've got like 10 days between our next set in somewhere else on a world tour. We've heard you're amazing. We want to come down and do a free concert. Like, when does Coldplay ring you? And say we want to no, never. Coldplay's never <laughs> called me before, <laughs> and and actually it, it it didn't come to pass because the airport runway couldn't sustain the weight of the aircraft for all the equipment to come in. Mm. couldn't, so it didn't happen. But the point being, that was the credibility that had been created around Dark Mobo. Yeah, absolutely, and, and even and a catalyst for winter travel. Yeah, even better. It's it's smack bang in the middle of the low season, as you said. It's yeah. you know. I do want to preface that Tasmania is very cold during the low season. You really want to rug up, but there is so much available and so many activities that are happening and it is really exciting. And those, both Mona and Dark Mofo are two things that you truly have to experience to really understand what they're like. You can try and explain it all you want, but they are both out of this world experiences that you just have to try. You have to see it to be part of it. And yeah. the cold thing, I mean, you know, plenty of places around the world, have, I mean, everyone's, not everywhere, it's a lot of cold places in winter. It is what it is. I think our, mm. our problem in the past was kind of resisting that instead of embracing it. So part of, the, part of the Tasmanian brand is to embrace those things that might be difficult to talk about. Mm. The Aboriginal history is one of them. It's a really difficult conversation to have because it's not, it's, it's not a pretty one. But we will embrace that because it's part of the Tasmanian story. Saying it's cold and dark and brooding in winter, that's okay. Actually adds an element of excitement about your visitation here. So, you know, your honesty is integral to our brand. 
Absolutely. And for those that don't know, when is Tasmania's low season? It's essentially um, from Easter through to about November, really. So as soon mm. as the Easter holidays are over, it's um, traditionally been a bit of a cliff. So um, our work at, when I was at Tourism Taz was to shorten the impact of low season. So try and extend the shoulder seasons as much as we could. So bring the shoulder season back to maybe September so that our true low season is really maybe June, July, August, those, those mm -hmm. hardcore months. Um, and part of the success of that was to try and ensure that we had airlines still servicing Tasmania significantly over that period. So every year we would lose 20% of those of seats into Tasmania over winter because it, an airline has a finite number of aircraft. So mm. They take them out of the Tasmania market and say, well, demand is low for Tasmania in winter. So we'll reallocate those aircraft to say Queensland and Northern Tasmania because demand is higher if you want to go north where it's warm which is actually makes perfect sense. So we knew that that was never going to end, but what we could do is minimise the impact. So one of my strategies and goals at Tourism Taz was to try and retain a significant number of seats and not just lose them. So we went from losing 20% of seats into Tasmania to losing 10% of seats, um, which is a, a significant gain. So yeah, that's great. over the course of winter, that might have meant you know, 10,000 extra bed nights, you know. So mm. there are ways to measure it. So a big draw as well for people to coming to Tasmania is the food and wine. I mean, as you said, you live next door to a winery. And living in Australia, I know that any product that I buy that sort of has the seal that it's made in Tasmania or from Tasmania triggers in my mind that it is going to be fresh, organic, delicious and it, it has a brilliant reputation and so what are the best things to try in Tasmania for food and other than the one that you live next door to what are the best wineries for people to visit well the one next door to us actually is just um being able to produce his brother labels so it's not have a cellar door mm. um but you're so right Tasmania punches well above its weight in terms of food, of food it's it's um low volume but very high quality so it's not it's not inexpensive and I'm totally okay with that. Um, you certainly wouldn't come to Tasmania if you wanted to scrimp on your food. You know, you mm. hate quality. Cheese is probably, for me, the number one thing here in Tasmania. The cheese is extraordinary. So the Bruni Island Cheese Company, Ashgrove Cheese, I think Bruni Island's down south. They've got an extraordinary um, cheese production um, business down there, Ashgrove up here in the north. Um, it's a bunch of others, a wicked cheese, etc. Cheese is phenomenal. Um, but things like sauces and 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 jams. Um, you know, there's a, a guy recently, or recently the last ten years, who decided to go into wasabi manufacturing. If you can believe that. And so now, one of the best wasabi's on the planet comes out of northern Tasmania near, near Devonport. But who would have thought? I know. <laughs> right, the state is littered with, with beautiful markets. And that's what I think is so lovely because these markets are um, delivered by the community and they're frequented by the community. So there's this beautiful, cyclical, self-sustaining um, market or food culture 
um, the food economy is what we call it, which is uh, prolific. So the harvest market up here in Launceston, uh, I think is one of the best harvest market in the country three or four times in its 10 year history. Um, mm. It's lovely seeing the people, um, they're people that you know, they're friends or they're the parents of kids that you, you, your own kids go to school with, and here they are now selling on the weekend their extraordinary produce, um, breads, um, beautiful artisan breads. Um, it's just, it's, um, and, and the, the, the vineyards are amazing. So close to me here is one of the best ones called Joseph Cromie. Joseph Cromie, I think a couple of times has won um, uh, like the world's best Riesling or something at the London Wine Awards. I mean, they're, they're very, uh, and there's a number of mm. wineries across. So in Northern Tasmania, we're known as one of, as kind of probably the cool climate winery capital of the country. Um, and so the production, but you've got people like Clover's, Clover Hill up here in the north. Um, so the, the, um, the Tamar Valley around Launceston is probably the number one wine producing area in Tasmania. Uh, sparkling wine is prolific here and extraordinary and holds its own with, with French champagne. Um, and then the Core River Valley down near Hobart with the other key wine growing area. But to be honest, across the entire island, there are wineries popping up everywhere. So um, you've got fantastic, you know, Freysne Vineyard, you've got, you know, on the East Coast, they're, they're everywhere. And most of them have got cellar doors and extraordinary landscapes for you to look out on um, and have incredible food. So it's this marriage of beautiful wine, sparkling wine and cold, cool climate wines, great food that's been produced um, through, you know, harvesting from the immediate surrounding area um, and a beautiful geography that means you just sit there and you're, you're also eating with your eyes at the same time. Man, I love it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, your passion is showing. I mean, it's, it's, it is a beautiful place. I can attest to that. It is just absolutely wonderful. Um, and because it is so small, the most popular way to get around is hiring a car and doing a road trip. So if people were to come visit, what sort of time range would you recommend and sort of route that you would recommend as well if people were hiring a car? That's a great question. And one of the challenges we had in the past was people were confused by Tasmania because it, it, there was so much to see and they didn't quite know how to get around to do it. And if you look at it just kind of as a map, you think, oh, things pretty close together. Like it's from Launceston to Cradle Mountains, probably only 150 kilometres, but it's like a two and a half mm. hour drive. You know, because the, the roads here are often windy, which is part of the delight because around every corner is a delight and a surprise of a landscape or a roadside, you know, jam stall or a, or a beautiful little village. Um, but um, what people, the, 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 our average length of stay for, for um, people who are touring with a car is 10 days. Having said that, people might fly into Launceston and spend four or five days in this area and then come back for a second trip. And so, um, to that point, I think part of Tassie's statistics would show in the last couple of years that 70% of people that came to Tasmania came again the following year. So it's got a very that is a huge amount. Massive. So it's a very high repeat visitation destination. 
And that's because people come down, they realise there's far more to see and do than they thought, and they needed more time to do it. So they had to come back and do kind of a second visit. Um, the, the, the danger for people is to say, I'm going to do Hobart, long do. I hate that term, by the way. <laughs> I'll fly into one session, I'll do Hobart and, you know, West Coast, whatever, and then within four days. And all you will see really is, is, is the car really, outside the car window. Mm. It's, it's far too, you can't do the island in, in that kind of time. It's just, you better to do it in chunks and say, I'm actually going to go to Dark Mofro, for example, and I'm going to spend a week maybe or four days and I'm going to go to the festival and I might go to two other lo- locations outside of Hobart only and I'll come back and I'll go to northern Tasmania or the west or the east at another visitation, another trip. But, but touring mm. our bread and butter. Yeah. And so, as we mentioned earlier in the introduction, uh, you work for the Hawthorne Football Club. And for those who don't know what that is, that is an AFL team, so Australian Football League here in Australia. Um, and I would give an a, a example of an equivalent sport, but there really isn't one other than Gaelic football. Uh, and not many people really know what that is either. AFL, I highly recommend you go on YouTube and looking up top 10 best marks. It is a very exciting sport. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess American um, football would be for an American audience. You know that that, mm. that. And so the, the, the Super Bowl for American football is our grand final. You know, yeah, and we we love it so much here in Melbourne that we actually get a uh, a public holiday for it on the Friday before the grand final, just to sort of prep. You know, make sure you've got the sausages for the barbecue. I so do. you know, yeah. So it. it Exactly. It's very close to my heart. Um, so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your, uh, your role there and what that means for tourism uh, in Tasmania as well. Yeah, people, it's funny, when I left Tourism Tasmania after having, you know, 20 years in the tourism industry, people were like, what on earth are you doing going to a football club? Um, it, it seemed totally left field. Um, but it won't feel left field when I explain why. So... The Tasmanian government sponsors Hawthorne Football Club. So Hawthorne Football Club is based in Melbourne um, and every team um, plays a series of home games that they own. So um, over the course of 28 games or so across a season, 11 games are, are the a responsibility of the club to put on. Four of those home games are played in Tasmania. So Hawthorne plays seven of their home games in Melbourne and for them in Tasmania. And the reason they did that was because they identified many years ago that Hawthorne probably, in terms of the Hawthorne membership and its fan following, probably had the closest football demographic in terms of some that might want to come to Tasmania because Hawthorne traditionally is a blue ribbon club. Um, it's in a mm. Melbourne that's a, um, uh, uh, an AB demographic, you know, high disposable income, traditionally speaking, for Hawthorne, rich suburb. So we wanted those people to come to Tasmania. So the government created a relationship with Hawthorne to use the club's channels and its relationship with Melbournians and others as a way of amplifying the brand, talking about the things you could see and do. And so it became kind of a tourism partnership. And of course, the four games a year down in Tasmania, people would come down and visit. So in any given year, the value of that, of that sponsorship is worth about $28 million to Tasmania in mm, wow. People would come down to Tasmania, they, they'd stay three or four days, 
They'd go to the game, they'd hire a car, they'd stay in hotels, they'd go to the local grocery store, they'd buy souvenirs, they'd go to the markets. So we tracked every bit of spend. So, um, so the tourism outcome, when you think about it, makes perfect sense. So I joined the club because I had this strong background in tourism marketing, brand development, um, and I guess, um, you know, um, customer profiling and segmentation. And I was able to bring to life this partnership with Hawthorne in a way that made sense for Tasmanians. So it wasn't just about coming down to a game, it was coming down and experiencing all that Tasmania has to offer. Um, so it's been a really fantastic partnership. I've been with the club now six years and we're the first club in the history of the Australian Tourism Awards to enter the Tourism Awards. And we won in our first year of entering a gold Tourism Award in Tasmania as the number one festival and event in the state. And we analyzed mm. everything you could possibly imagine of the business. We analyzed and we did a, a 12,000 word submission. So it was a, a thesis wow. essentially. Yep. Um, and we won a gold tourism award, which is a great accolade and acknowledgement that what we're doing is delivering great outcomes for the visitor economy in Tasmania. Yeah, and the great thing about the footy games as well is that they're in low season, you know, they're, they're throughout winter and, and, you know, it's easy just to buy a ticket online and well, that's right. make sure you grab a, yeah, grab a sausage roll and a beer and that's yeah. a fantastic well, to evening. To point, the partnership is funded through Events Tasmania because we're seen as mm. events and Events Tasmania will always look to support those events that are, that are regional and off season. Well, that's exactly what we're about too. Yeah, there you go. So yeah. Obviously, Dark Mofo isn't regional because it's in Hobart, but it's definitely off-season. And the, the ripple effect of having, you know, um, tens of thousands of people come down in winter, obviously, it spreads out of Hobart. Um, but Launceston will be seen as being regional Tasmania. Um, so, you know, four games over winter in a regional location is absolutely what this government is about. David, you have painted an absolutely beautiful, fresh, clean, just angelic view of Tasmania. And thank you so much for joining us today. It has been really wonderful. And I am so desperate to get down there as soon as your borders open. Uh, it is pretty much the first first place on my list to go. Yeah, well, I can say we feel completely blessed to have been here during this during this year. So, and I clearly love Tasmania, so I can talk about it till the cows come home. Yeah, I knew I'd have to cut you off. We'd, we, we could just keep on going and going. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Right, take care. Another big thank you to David for joining us on the podcast today. It's so wonderful to talk to someone so passionate about where they live. And to be fair, it doesn't seem hard when you're living in Tasmania. Thank you for listening today. And if you have any suggestions of destinations that you'd like to know more about, any feedback or questions for us, make sure to message us on our social channels at Low Season Traveller. We'd love to hear from you. Stay safe and healthy and more now than ever. Travel is better without the crowds. Mm-hmm.